0: Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet, bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply thousands of aussies trust aussie broadband to keep them connected to the world even when they're on the go because as well as reliable home internet aussie broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts Their 100% percent australian based support team are ready to help you make the switch it only takes a few minutes aussie broadband the actual aussie way search aussie broadband mobile to find out more t's and c's apply welcome back to dylan friends this week i'm so excited to announce our guest um, he's an absolute star, he's an absolute legend, he's absolute literally, literally is a hero and he is Australian of the year, former Australian of the year. Richard Harry Harris, this guy and his story is honestly unbelievable and so so blessed and lucky to have him on the show. For those who don't know Harry, he likes to be uh, called. Harry is a anethidist. He's also a cave diver. And he's just a high-performing individual. Back in 2018, June 2018, a massive event rocked the rocked the world when 12 young boys from Thailand, um, their soccer team, was exploring a cave with with their coach, and um, monsoon weather came through, struck you know in the cave and and filled up the cave, and it flooded. And twelve of the boys and this and their coach got stuck in the cave for you know up to twenty days. Um, they you know no one knew how to save them. It was absolutely you know just a hectic hectic time in the world and I can still remember it clear as day. Um, but I had no idea what what transpired next and um, and how much Australia was involved with that and, and especially the man today that we had on the show he was you know i don't want to ruin the story before we get into it, but he was flown over to help out um, obviously being a cave diver and an ananahodist he um you know he's a doctor obviously as well and and he's um all of his skills came into full fruition with with everything that was going on so i don't want to ruin the story but it is absolutely unbelievable what he was able to do and yeah just blessed to have him on the show he's he's so humble and um yeah you you wouldn't even know what he's achieved um in his time so blessed to, to have him on hear this story and yeah it's probably one of my One of my real favourite episodes that I've done today. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I could tell you so much more. I don't want to ruin the story. Let's just get into it.
1: My name is Deborah,
0: Dylan's mum.
1: Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast.
0: Many ways, I've
1: been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears, 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah.
0: everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to yes. the Olympics?
1: <laughs> They're sitting there meditating going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How like, this is this? I'm meditating. It's like, <laughs> I had
0: a Wu-Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. It's knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Richard Harris, welcome to the show, my friend. This is uh, unbelievable. I'm so honoured to have you on the podcast.
1: Dylan, great to be here. Thanks, mate.
0: We were, we've been chatting for a little bit about this. I obviously am a huge fan of what you've done, what you've been able to achieve, um, and we've been sort of in communication recently um, via email. And just to get off the bat, because I'm I'm so confused, Richard Harris, but
1: you keep signing off as Harry. So is Harry the go-to, or is it Richard? Yeah, definitely Harry. I think yeah. from about the age of seven years old, everyone just started calling me Harry and actually started with my older sister. And she was nicknamed Harry because of a, a childhood book called Harry the Dirty Dog, which is not very flattering to her, but, um, uh, and I just picked up the nickname from her, I guess from Harris is where it starts.
0: Makes sense. I'm, I'm just very well known to um, stuff up exactly what I'm saying in all of my podcasts, which everyone that listens consistently knows. So I just want to make sure today that I am calling you by your, the correct uh, term, and we'll stick to Harry for the, for the remainder of the podcast
1: today. Harry's fine.
0: Mate, how's the summer been? Um, What have you been up to? Uh, I know you're an extremely busy man, but have you enjoyed yourself? Have you had a good break?
1: Well, actually, I haven't really had a proper break. I've just been working bits and pieces throughout um, since before Christmas because uh, elective surgery, because I'm an anaesthetist, I've been working in the hospitals. Elective surgery has been kind of turned off, but not quite finished. So I've just been doing bits and pieces and uh, obviously doing some of my other passion projects. Like I'm, I'm working on another book and I've got my podcast going and been working a little bit on some of the the film stuff that's happened around the rescue. So life's pretty busy, to be honest.
0: I can imagine. I've been a massive fan of your, your podcast, uh, Real Real Risk. Um, obviously, your book as well and the documentary that's all, all happened, which we'll, we'll definitely touch on today, all those things. I, I honestly have no idea how you manage... Being uh, anethetus, you know, cave diver, documentaries, all these sort of things. But um, yeah, I'm so so keen to unpack your story, and I'm sure we're going to get a good idea of how you how you manage all these things because you're obviously a very high, um, highly, I wouldn't say a high operator is that the right term a high operator of how you've been able to do it because it is is seriously impressive i think
1: the answer is i bite off more than i can chew and um uh as soon as my life is under control and things are relatively quiet then i sabotage everything by taking on a new project and say you know Oh, I'll start a project. Uh, start a podcast. I haven't got enough on my plate, so yeah, and that ruins your life again for a while until you.
0: I, I couldn't agree. <laughs> I look, I'm, not, I'm. I really don't want to compare myself to you at all today, but I couldn't agree more. I, I have the same tendencies. As soon as I feel comfortable, I start to panic and think that I need another problem to start figuring out. So I've exactly. done the podcast. Let's start another business. Let's do this. Let's do that. I think it, it. In in some ways, which I'm sure that you have these same tendencies now. Like stress, the relationship with stress is is good for me like i found that i actually perform better when i'm under stress and have something to push me in the way like i was just on a holiday break before and i was saying to a a previous guest emma murray that we had on last week that i really don't um i don't know how to to manage when i'm I'm not doing something
1: no i agree that's a really good insight i I think that's exactly the same for me as soon as things are a bit quieter under control then i seem to find ways to make life crazy again and, you know, the saying, if you want something done, ask a busy man. So maybe that's us.
0: <laughs> very true. Hey, let's get into to your story, mate. Um, obviously, we're all really aware of, of what you've been able to achieve and what you've done. But I would love to go back to the start, just find out a bit about your upbringing, um, where you grew up, what you were like as a kid, what was your family like and and how you got to where you are.
1: Uh, well, I uh, was born and bred in Adelaide, which is where I am am still. Uh, and, you know, I was very lucky, very Privileged upbringing, middle-class family, nice suburb and, you know, never really wanted for – uh, always had food on the plate and a roof over our heads, so I consider myself extraordinarily lucky in that regard. Uh, went to a good school, and um, but I think what was important in my life early on was that my parents and their family friends were kind of into the outdoors a bit. Uh, Dad was always into the beach and boating and fishing, so that was a huge part of my childhood, just being on the ocean and, and catching fish. Uh, I got into snorkeling and spearfishing very early as a young boy and was always fascinated by the ocean and I was sure from as long as I can remember I was going to be a marine biologist and um, in fact I applied for that and, and got into it um, but somehow fluked getting into medicine as well so uh, you know kind of made the choice of a, a, a maybe a more safe career in terms of you know reliable income and stuff but but that that love of the ocean and biology and science has never never left me so that's a big part of my my upbringing and but we're also into you know camping and the bush and hiking and stuff and as I mentioned earlier um, you know team sports weren't really my thing I wasn't particularly talented or coordinated in those areas but I just found that being in the outdoors and the wilderness was something I really was was drawn to and that became a real focus for me and as it's as it's turned out it's been especially the diving it's been more than a hobby it's just been a massive part of my life.
0: Incredible. I'm so keen to unpack that. But first, let's go to the medical side of things because, um, you know, I'm sure most people know what an an anesthetist is. I've, uh, you know, played footy for a while, been, had the pleasure of working with a lot of, a lot of you to be able to put me to sleep and have so many surgeries. But I know there's so much more to it. Um, how would you explain what you, you do now to someone who has no idea what it is?
1: Yeah, well, I went to medical school and then finished my training. Initially, I thought I would be a country GP because I like the idea of being well, out in the country to start with, but also being a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, doing a bit of anesthesia, a bit of surgery, a bit of uh, you know delivering babies and all the rest of it. And I went to the UK to do some anesthesia training with that in mind and actually just really loved the specialty, uh, doing anesthesia and intensive care work and a bit of emergency medicine, so I sort of switched um, uh, goals maybe and and came back and did the anesthesia training program in Australia which is another six years or so and then so you don't actually become fully qualified at what you're doing till you're in your early 30s so it's quite a long long haul but um, and then subsequently you know rather than just being stuck in the operating theatre putting people to sleep for their operations um, I found that that wasn't quite enough for me so I started to explore other areas in medicine where I could use, to some degree, those same skills. So I did quite a lot of work in the diving and hyperbaric medicine unit at the uh, Royal Adelaide Hospital in Adelaide. So that's, um, you know, traditionally treating divers with the bends. Um, you put them in this big chamber and pressurise the chamber to get rid of the bubbles in their blood. But it's also used for a lot of other stuff like wound healing and, um, you know, the footy players For at one stage used to go in there for their soft tissue injuries and things. But that was found to be a bit bogus and didn't really help. So uh, we don't do that anymore. But um, that, that was quite exciting. And, and um, you know, hanging out with all these police divers and commercial divers and stuff was really interesting to me. And then uh, we went to Vanuatu and lived there for a couple of years and did some medicine in a developing country setting, which was really interesting. I did, um, you know, around the ICU and anesthesia and and also the diving chamber over there for a couple of years. Then back to Adelaide and started working with the South Australian Ambulance, working, you know, on the helicopters and and doing that sort of uh, stuff. So delivering that same sort of critical care medicine but in – slightly stranger environments again, you know, at the roadside or in a shed on a farm somewhere and, you know, looking after the most sick or injured patients in South Australia and bringing them back to the the big hospitals in, in Adelaide. So I've always kind of tried to mix it up a bit and alongside in parallel, maybe with my, you know, diving and doing more and more big expeditions to remote areas and being the doctor on those trips as well. It's all kind of come together quite nicely in a way to, um, A, keep me entertained, but also obviously when this rescue came up in Thailand to give me the right skill set to be of use in that.
0: We spoke about pressure before and I'm seriously embarrassed now that I compared it to, to yours because my pressure is work and, and your pressure is life and death situations. It sounds like like you know you're putting yourself in these situations, continually scaling up to all these types of facets and then... That's how I suppose it really does correlate with, with the diving and, and being able to, you know, stay calm. I think that's the biggest thing that, you know, just from chatting you today is maybe the difference between you and the average person, including myself, is you can just stay calm in these situations that are very high risk.
1: Well, everyone's got a point where they lose their calm demeanour, of course, but and, and, and I'm certainly one of those. But, but, you know, part of that is an acquired skill when you're – when you work in a a specialty like critical care medicine and the patients can deteriorate very rapidly in front of your eyes sort of thing they start going blue and you've literally got a couple of minutes to change the course of their their progression otherwise they're going to have a cardiac arrest or whatever then you need to be able to maintain sufficient calm to be able to deal with that without panicking um but a lot of that Uh, you know some of that is inherent and if if you don't have a bit of that to start with then you're unlikely to want to stay in that specialty because it's just too stressful for you and certainly some of my friends along the way said oh you know maybe this is not for me but um once you've got a little bit of that you can develop a lot more of it just through repetition and training and exposure to those those difficult circumstances and um and and sort of stepping it up in the way I've described with my career by just being exposed to more and more challenging situations. You know, you build on that previous experience. And I would say that, it, you know, at the end of the day, it just turns out to be a job no more or, or less stressful than um, some, other, some other jobs. You know, I think about people who work in um, the media or publishing and the deadlines that they've got. I mean, the stress that you experience in life is... to a a large degree put upon yourself as we've started this conversation about you know some people go looking for it some people try and avoid it but you know if you're unemployed and sitting on your ass at home that that's a massive stress and um you know you're worrying worrying about putting food on the table that's you know different type of stress again so i think it's just whatever you're used to
0: do, do you have any, like, techniques that you use? It, it sounds like it was quite inherent for you that it's something that you you were already good at and you said you've developed it over the years. But, for example, and, and jumping ahead a bit here to next week, I'm going on this um, resilience camp because I haven't really tested myself in a while. I used to play sport, haven't done anything. So i signed up to this camp and it's approaching now. I'm like, fuck, I really don't want to do this. It's something that and I don't have to do. I've sort of wrote myself into it. And the main reason being... Um, And how I actually came across you to try and get better at this is I'm extremely claustrophobic. And I was trying to like get myself comfortable in watching these like, you know, your documentary, reading your book and um, any techniques that can, you know, help yourself stay calm in these situations. What would you say to someone in that situation, but also in any situation where they might find themselves over panic? Is there something that you do like a trigger? Is it breathing? Is it mindfulness go to somewhere you want to be that helps you out in, in those severe situations?
1: Yeah, there, there are actually, and um, again, it's all about familiarisation and to take cave diving as an example, you know, you what you want to have as you progress through your training and courses and experience is to have lots of very small frights along the way that you can start to build some resilience to those situations rather than one big fright that comes early on that is too overwhelming to deal with and, and panic as a result and underwater uh, in a cave panic equates with death basically there's you know if you if you lose rational thought if if you lose the ability to plan and think logically and problem solve then you will die because um, and, and we know that for a fact because divers die and they still have air in their their scuba tanks um so they've they've stopped breathing or they've spat the regulator out of their mouth or they've they've panicked and died whilst they still had a chance because they still had air to breathe so why does that happen? And I think it's just this overwhelming physiological response which just removes any rational, reasonable thought. Um, so you need some way to address that and to intervene before it escalates too, too far. And I've certainly had that feeling of escalating fear and panic underwater in a cave. And um, in fact, it was a friend of mine who faced what appeared to be certain death in a cave. At one point, he got trapped in a cave because the, the cave basically collapsed behind him, uh, which is an incredibly rare event, but it did happen on this occasion. And so when he turned around to come back out, he was met with a sealed exit. You know, basically the piece of string that we always put in the cave to follow in and out went into a big um, sloping mud bank and so the exit was blocked. So, of course, he started to feel this rising panic. And he, he was telling me about this and he said, I just I felt this physical thing coming up and it was just about up to my eyeballs. And he, and he said, I knew that if it got up to this point that I was actually just going to lose consciousness. I was just going to pass out because of the fear and I had to do something. So he thought I need to do something active and he just started counting from 1 to 10, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And just that act of taking control and doing something that he could do in that moment however small it was, was enough to make this physical thing just push back down again. And he was able to get back in control and he made a plan and he managed to escape. Um, I won't go into all the details, but it's an incredible story in itself. And um, I got stuck at the back of a cave a couple of years after that and this, and I felt that physical visceral reaction starting in myself. And I remembered his story and it basically saved my life because I did the same thing and it completely helped and allowed me to stop and think long enough to start making a plan and, and escape the situation. So I guess my go-to now, uh, and we have this saying in, in cave diving, it's a bit of a mantra, and that is stop, breathe, think, act. And um, those four words, if you actually say them out loud or in your head whilst you feel this panic you know, starting, is enough to often get you back on track and, and move forward. And I've used it in other settings, like I don't know if you've ever done public speaking, and you feel and you sort of lose your train of thought, and you feel that sudden sort of squirt of adrenaline and that flush of fear, or you know a situation like that. Um, and I, I, I've sometimes used the same thing in those situations. It's a really helpful mantra. It's yeah, it's
0: fascinating to hear, and it's something that like I can, I can really um, revel with. I suppose I can really like understand how that could happen. I'm just thinking in my own head of. The situation I would be facing as well, trying to to do that, because I know that it's it's just about really distracting yourself. I think of taking away from the situation it is and and staying calm and understanding your breath and, and thinking logically. But at that time, and and I've been in those situations before with this with this fear where you just it is hard to see to see that because your brain just does go it just runs a hundred mile an hour to to try and escape.
1: Yeah, and you know, caving is is something that can be. Pretty strong provocation for you know those those sent, that sense of fear or panic uh, as the as the you know the walls close in on you and you're in a very tight passage. I actually get a bit claustrophobic in dry caves myself because you know you've still got the weight of gravity on you you can be in a tiny little tunnel where you've got your head turned to the side just to make your head fit through a crack sort of thing and you know your breath is kind of hot and close and you feel like you can't quite get enough breath and i certainly get that same sense of fear and claustrophobia in those caves but strangely underwater because gravity is removed and it's very easy to move backwards and forwards you can like you can move just with your fingers on on the floor of the cave because you're neutrally buoyant i find that much more relaxing actually being underwater in that situation i can wriggle through things underwater that freak me out a bit in in the dry caves so go figure
0: what um what actually draws you to this like i know there's probably a million answers to to that question but I think a lot of people listening would be like, that is my worst nightmare to, to do that and they'd never put themselves in that situation. What draws you to it? Is it the test of doing? It? Is it something that um you know you just want to explore that risk and you love these these situations? Have you reflected and worked out for yourself why you actually do that?
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's a it's a whole multitude of reasons, starting with the beauty of the environment. I mean, caves aren't necessarily like what I've just described. Often they're big, beautiful, crystal clear, open tunnels with really stunningly clear water and beautiful, you know, geological formations, lots of of interesting science, the biology and the water and so forth. They're... um Visually very stunning places and I like my photography and, and video and stuff. Uh, the equipment is quite complex and the logistics can be quite complex, especially for remote expeditions. I really enjoy all the all the tinkering with all the gear and we we build a lot of stuff for ourselves sometimes and um, develop our own techniques for different types of caves. But overwhelmingly, the thing that draws uh, myself and, and some others back is this idea of genuine exploration because... Um, the caves are really unique in, on our planet in that uh, they are the last place that you can genuinely go and find something that has never been seen before. Like every mountain has either been climbed or, the, or at the very least you can look at it through a pair of binoculars and and see and plan which way up the mountain you're going to go. But if you find a hole in the ground... You know, you step down into it. If you're the first person in there, you don't know whether it's going to go for ten meters and then, you know, be sealed off, or it might open up into the biggest cave system in the world, full of some magical crystals or fauna that's never been described. Or uh, what we hope for is that it goes to water and then we can start diving and exploring. Um, and you know, that experience of being the very first to find something for yourself. Is hugely exciting and actually very addictive as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's like a genuine exploration. Is it does it take you back to any like memory standout to highlights of, of diving or cave diving um, that that has occurred where you've been like shit, I literally have been the first person that's ever been here before.
1: Yeah, quite a few times. And, you know, I've been very lucky over the years. Um, the group of guys that uh, and girls that I I have ended up diving with over the last twenty years uh Kind of exploration is their big thing and some of them are a bit older than me. They've been great mentors to me and, um, you know, we've just got this really tight little group of, of friends now that love doing this stuff, and most of most of these other people have actually been far more successful than I have at finding new caves. Some people have got a real nose for it, you know. They can just look at the landscape and go, I think there's going to be caves over there on that ridgeline, and uh, one, of the, one of the guys I know is prepared to spend a whole week just bushwalking, looking for entrances and stuff, whereas I haven't got the patience. I'll wait for him to find them, and then I'll go and jump in there with him. So... Um, yeah, it's a it's a whole skill set in itself. And then what I love is bringing back the videos and and images of these new places to show people because I think you know it's so great to be able to share it.
0: Hey, um, I'd love to go back to to June twenty eighteen and and set the scene of, of obviously a story that we're all quite familiar with today, um, and uh, of what's transpired with the boys over in Thailand. Um, but I could set this scene. I could try to do it as best that I could. But I think you're the master at at, at trying to tell this uh, this incredible story. Would you be happy to set the scene for us and, and what happened on, you know, that final day and, and, and then obviously you getting involved?
1: Yes, well, I have told the story a few times, so I should be all right to uh, <laughs> give you a bit of an intro. <laughs> um, so I had um, – I just opened the newspaper one morning in uh, June 18 and I saw a tiny little like a square inch of text in the second page of the newspaper saying 12 boys from a soccer team and their coach were missing underground, assumed to be in a cave in northern Thailand. And because of, obviously, my passion for caving and cave diving, but also uh, I'm, I'm involved in volunteer cave rescue in Australia. So I, I really, you know, pricked up my ears at that and thought, hello, might be something here. Um, and very quickly I learned that a guy who lives in Thailand, an expat from Belgium who runs a diving business in Thailand, had become involved and I knew this fella Ben Raymanence because I'd done an expedition um, with him the previous year over in Thailand exploring some caves so I texted Ben and said hey what's going on are you involved in this thing and he he was actually on his way in the car up to northern Thailand to go and see if he could help at all. Uh, so that was my first sort of inside knowledge of the thing and it just got bigger and bigger over the next week as they uh, started to search for these kids and try and dive into this cave which was dry when the kids walked in but flooded, you know, literally right behind them. Um, and they turned around to come out and suddenly there's water in, in where there was a dry passage and unbeknownst to them the monsoon rains had started, you know, a, a week or two early and had it had been raining over the back of the mountain out of view. And suddenly, waters come up through the ground whilst they're in the cave and they're, they're trapped. And um, the water kept coming up, um, and um, they had to actually retreat further into the cave to find a high, bit of high ground where they could sit out uh, and await rescue. So over the next few days, the the flooding got worse and worse and worse until the river actually started flowing out of the entrance to this cave. Now that happens every year, predictably in the monsoon season, but it had occurred, you know, maybe nearly a month early on this occasion. So for all intents and purposes, everyone assumed that the kids could well actually be dead already. They could have drowned. and um, But a local caver said there are a couple of high spots in that cave. So if they've managed to get to that point, they might be all right. So we need to get some more cave divers on site. And um, that's when they called the British divers over Rick and John, who, again, I already knew through previous expeditions. You know, it's a pretty small pool I guess um, you know in in cave diving circles there's not I don't understand why I mean I thought it should be as popular as AFL but apparently not so many people are interested in in my chosen pursuit and uh, so the good thing is that at at a sort of higher level I guess a lot of us know each other and and um, so word of mouth's going around and suddenly now there's three or four guys over there that I that I already know quite well so I guess it was only a matter of time before um, you know there was a chance that uh, I might get invited to go, and I had actually to be honest been gently angling for that you know with my involvement in cave rescue. I just had a sense that, as a doctor as well, if they find these kids alive, i had I had a real strong feeling that I could be of use over there. I never thought it would be as an anaesthetist. I just thought it would be to provide some medical care to these kids if they were alive still and while while we worked out how to get them out so that's uh I guess that's the background to it all and On day nine after the kids went missing, the two British divers made that final breakthrough into chamber nine where the kids were and found them alive. Um, And they had had no food at all for that nine days. They'd just been drinking water, so they'd lost a lot of weight. They were starting to get pretty shaky and um, dizzy when they stood up and stuff, but they were alive. And um, that's the point I think the whole world really became aware of this story and it became a major international event.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong as well, but the, the before that, um, you know, the Thailand Navy had been there, the US Navy had been there to try and find the kids, and it was Rick and John that were the ones that actually found them uh, on on day nine. And, and there was a bit of hesitation to actually let them there because you had like this, you know, the, the two navies trying to control, and then there was these two just from everyone else from the public, random random guys from the UK coming over to to dive.
1: Well, exactly. And, you know, the Thai Navy SEALs, the most elite uh, operators in the in the Thai military, perhaps, um, had been on site from about day two and diving, trying to get through. Um, but what we've learnt many, many times, sadly, over the years is that cave diving is such a specific diving skill, very specific training, very specific equipment, that even the most elite Navy divers are not necessarily equipped for that environment. And it actually reflects very well on the courage of those guys that they were having a go because it was incredibly bloody dangerous for them and sadly, as we know, one of them ended up um, dying in the cave trying to take some equipment through. So when Rick and John arrived, um, you know, they looked, A bit like me. They're just, you know, middle-aged white men who have got this weird hobby. And a lot of our gear is homemade. I mean, we look like a dog's breakfast, to be honest. You know, Rick especially loves his homemade gear. So he's got this – he's got a wetsuit. He's got holes in the knees and he's got this homemade harness and he's got a tyre, a a car – Tire inner tube as his buoyancy device on his back. It looks like a big black donut. I mean, it just looks ridiculous. (laughs) And you can imagine the Thai Navy SEALs all spit and polish and, you know, you know, gung-ho guys looking at this fella and going, serious? Is this the best that the West has to offer? This is our hope of salvation. So they actually said, you guys cannot go in the cave. It's too dangerous. And Rick and John were going, well, you know, actually we do know what we're doing. So they had to prove themselves. And, um, you know, they started to do that by, by getting making some distance into the cave and always laying a rope behind us so that you can always find your way back out again because that's sort of rule number one of cave diving, always leave a, uh, a string of peas to, to follow back out again.
0: You mentioned before about um, cave rescue. Was this your first try at cave rescue or did you, had you actually done some rescue previously?
1: Yeah, sadly, it was well, maybe happily, it was the first uh, live rescue, but I'd done some body recoveries before, and um, but I had actually been running a course based around the principle that we might need to get someone who was injured or sick through a section of flooded cave out to the surface, and that idea came about through purely selfish interests. I was out on the Nullarbor Plain diving with my mate Craig, who ended up being at the rescue with me, in about 2008 and we were four and a half kilometres underground uh, through the water and surfaced in this dry chamber, and then we were carrying our equipment across this dry chamber, so sort of hopping from boulder to boulder, carrying scuba tanks, you know, it's probably the most dangerous part of the whole outing. And I remember saying to him, what would happen if one of us fell over and broke our leg here, you know, or hit our head? Who or how would someone rescue an injured person, you know, four and a half k's back underwater out to the entrance? And based on that, idea i just couldn't let it go and so i came home and i got together a bunch of experienced cave divers got the police divers and we just had this big sort of think tank over the course of a weekend and ran some scenarios and from that i put together a bit of a course and i started running the course for as many cave divers as i could basically so that if this ever eventuated then at least we'd have done a bit of preparation and given it some thought so by the time i got asked to go to thailand you know, I had all this theoretical and practical knowledge based on practicing on my mates, essentially, Um, plus having moved some dead people through underwater caves, which, you know, wasn't what we were hoping to achieve with this course. But, you know, it's all good practice, I guess, when it came to moving the kids out.
0: Incredible. When did you finally get the call up? How did that all sort of transpire? Was it, I know you said before, you were already hinting that you were really keen to get involved. Um, do you remember where you were and when you got the call and, and how quickly you were on the flight over?
1: Yeah well I had continued once I heard Rick in particular was over there I was really pleased to hear that Rick and John um, were involved because I knew I mean these guys are you know my heroes in, in cave diving They are, they are, they are literally the best around and when I heard they were there I started texting Rick and saying you know we're here in Australia it's kind of I felt like it's kind of our patch as well. You know, we're, you know, part of the Asia-Pacific region, it, you know, Australian Cave Rescue should be involved if it kicks off. So Rick was sort of telling me how things were on the ground and then this big breakthrough came when Rick and John finally found the kids. Um, so our communications continued and then it was about three days after the kids were found, um, Rick had texted me that morning at about half past six in the morning and said, look, honestly, I don't know what we're going to do. I can't see any way these kids are coming out alive. Um, we've got no means of getting them out through the cave. We can't just dive them out. They'll just panic very, very quickly because it's like two and a half kilometres out, about a three-hour cave dive, and not an easy cave dive. It was pretty gnarly. So diving them out under their own steam was out of the question. They were trying to pump out the water. That wasn't working, and the rains were going to be getting heavier and heavier, and um, you know the original flood conditions that Rick and John faced were actually... So dangerous they couldn't dive for the first few days. So he said, if it goes back to that, that's the end of it. You know, the kids are stuck. So we need to do something. And it was actually his idea that he texted to me. He said, What do you think about sedating the kids to bring them out? I said, That is ridiculous. Don't even, never speak of it again, kind of thing, you know. Because um, I could think of a hundred ways that you, the kids would die if you anaesthetize them and then try and put them underwater for three hours. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that's a bad idea. Um, but he said, oh, maybe you should come over and have a look at that because I can't think of anything else. So I um, agreed to come over and he spoke to some Australian government people that were already on the ground. The federal police were there helping. And so Canberra called me about an hour later. That was sort of that that morning. I was actually in the operating theatre and I got this call and um, I said, yep, happy to go. And uh, by the way, I need my mate Craig to come with me because I need another safe pair of hands to keep an eye on me and and the plan. And they went, oh, no, I don't know about Craig, you know, because I was sort of already on the government books for various uh, response teams uh, with my work with the ambulance service. But Craig was a bit more of an unknown quantity to them, so they were a bit uh, reluctant to have some other random involved. But I managed to say, well, I'm not going if he doesn't go kind of thing. So there we were. We are both on our way.
0: (laughs) What was it like landing there, Um, obviously – there with rick and john the plans being laid that was the idea did you actually think that that was going to happen was it was the plan to actually put the kids to sleep like how much did you actually think in your head i know doctors are always very very realistic on plans did you really think this was actually going to work
1: i had 100 uh, percent certainty that those children could not survive if we anesthetize them um and and push them underwater for three hours and, you know, that came from my knowledge of diving and diving equipment, from my work as an anaesthetist, but also from this, this training that we'd been doing for the last 12 or 13 years. I mean, I had actually, I'd even practised myself pretending to be unconscious and being taken through a cave underwater. And even though we're using these full face masks, which will seal all the way around your face so you don't have to be awake to hold the mouthpiece in your mouth, Even with that, I found that the mask would gradually fill up with water if I didn't take active steps to to clear it. So I just was absolutely certain that the kids would drown in their mask or a hundred other ways they could die, which probably haven't got time to go into. But, you know, I could think of so many ways they would perish and not one way that it could work. And, you know, it was totally unprecedented. No one had ever done such a thing before. So my view when I left Australia was that I'm going to help, but I'm definitely not going to anesthetize those boys. And I guess um, the next question is, well, why did I change my mind? And it was really having spent 24 hours on the ground and sort of asking all the questions I needed to ask and actually going to visit the boys myself and seeing where they were that I realized that. They, they had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die in the cave because, you know, the rains would come and they'd be trapped in there so they'd starve or die of infection or whatever. Or we give this crazy idea a go and, it, you know, whilst I didn't think it would work, at least we'd be doing something to
0: try and help them. How long had they been in there when you arrived? What, what day were we at?
1: Uh, I think we're up to day 13 or... 14. i think they ended up in there 17 days total
0: unbelievable and what was the actual logistics around this like i can imagine it's not as simple as just putting them to sleep and diving them out like how narrow were these passages how did it actually even transpire did you have to take in the wetsuits take in all the gear like train the kids i'm imagining there's language barriers in there um how long did it take to actually convince them and explain what was actually going to happen
1: yeah well all those things you've sort of hit the nails on the head really um so Craig and I, the first, well, the first night we were there, we, we just spent the evening talking to the, Brit- the British guys about the cave itself, making sure that it sounded like it was actually safe and sensible to even dive in there. You normally wouldn't dive in a cave that is actively flooding. Um, so the water level was at, at, at a state where it was reasonable to be diving, um, but we had to kind of keep a close eye on the weather. And I spent, as I mentioned, that 24 hours just asking all these questions, you know, where's the water pumping up to? Can we drain the cave to just swim the kids out or walk them out? And the answer was no. You know, we're holding on, but once the rains come back, um, then the cave's going to reflood again and no one will get back into the cave and probably not for another three to six months. So, you know, and the forecast said we had, we probably had three or four days until that happened and then it's game over. So we had to make, plans pretty pretty fast. So um, I kind of insisted on diving the cave the next day, even though it was almost a wasted day. I just needed to, A, make sure I was safe in the cave and that I could manage it myself and, B, just go and see the kids and, and look them in the eye and have a look around the environment I was going to be in if I was going to do this anaesthetic plan and just make the whole thing a bit less theoretical and a bit more concrete in my mind and so Craig and I dived the cave the next day. And while we did that, um, the Brits and the US Air Force guys got some volunteers from the local swimming swimming club, some local kids, and they took them to the pool and started to work on the system that we were going to use in terms of, you know, dressing them in wetsuits. Did we have the right size wetsuits? I mean, the smallest kid turned out to be 29 kilos. So they're tiny kids, some of them. So, you know, finding a wetsuit for that guy is not that easy. Um you know, how are we going to dress them in the diving equipment? Would the full face masks even fit these tiny little boys? All this sort of stuff. And then they practised swimming, these volunteers around in the swimming pool while the kids, you know, pretended to be asleep. So that all seemed to work, um, at least with awake kids. And, um, so, and, and by then I'd had a chance to look at the cave, visit the kids, explain to the kids through one of the Navy SEALs who was in there who spoke English explain to them what we thought the plan might be if we come back the next day to do it. So, and and the kids, to be fair, were completely on board. I mean, you know, they'd been sitting in there for nearly two weeks. They had been sitting on damp mud in t-shirts and shorts, shivering their asses off, uh, hungry and pretty scared, as you can imagine. So they were definitely up for anything that we could suggest. They just they they would have done whatever we told them, to be honest, at that stage to come out. And their morale was really good. I was really impressed. What what do you remember
0: from, like, this plan as well, like, with with obviously putting the kids to sleep? um, It had been agreed upon, but was there still some people that weren't on board with it? Like, was it totally agreed upon with the government and, and the SEALs and were they everyone on the same page or was there still people going, no, we shouldn't be doing this?
1: Look, not that I was aware of. Um, Everyone who was directly involved in the plan, you know, made this agreement to to pursue it and everyone gave 110% effort and support once the plan was made. But the point up to the decision was very fraught. You know, lots of robust discussions, um, lots of meetings with ministers and governors and, you know, the prime minister on the phone and the king's guard in the room reporting back to the king. And, um, you know, we had to... You know, I never tried to convince anyone that this was a good idea because I felt it was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but I did tell people what I was prepared to do, what I was prepared to attempt. But ultimately the decision to do this or not was up to the ties. And um, that that night after Craig and I dived the cave, we, we were up till nearly three in the morning in meetings, um, you know, trying to uh, thrash this out. And in the end they said, all right, go home, Uh, have a couple of hours sleep and we'll tell you in the morning whether this is going ahead or not. And uh, it was that next morning, the Sunday morning, that um, we were told, yep, it's all go, so off you go.
0: What what do you remember of that first dive, that first rescue? um, Sorry, the first rescue going in when you actually knew, all right, this is a plan, we're going in and we're going to get the first boy out.
1: Well, I started that day by teaching the cave divers how to give an anesthetic because it only actually dawned on me fairly late in the piece that the the injection I was going to give the kids into their leg muscle uh, drug called ketamine was probably only going to last for about three quarters of an hour, but these kids had a three-hour trip out of the cave and so they had to be kept asleep, which meant they were going to need at least two or three more injections on the way out. Now, giving an intramuscular injection is not a difficult skill, but... The decision to give the injection and how much dose and, you know, uh, how to do it in the dark or underwater or, you know, never having even put a needle and syringe together for most of these guys, you know, it's pretty daunting, let alone the courage it takes to sort of be an anaesthetist when you are not an anaesthetist. I mean, it was scary for me. I can't imagine what it was like for these other guys. So basically I gave them this 30-minute lecture on anesthesia They all had a practice uh, injecting an empty water bottle, thus signing off their practical competencies. So it took you uh,
0: 10 plus years and took them 30 minutes.
1: (laughs) Exactly, which uh, maybe doesn't say much for the difficulty of being an anaesthetist. (laughs) But um, no, what I think it does say, firstly, is the the courage of the guys who agreed to do it, but also how um, good ketamine as a drug is in this particular setting. Uh, it's not good in nightclubs, I would point out to your listeners, because um, it has some horrible side effects. But in terms of, um, you know, using in emergency settings like this, we use it quite a lot in the field in car accidents and all sorts of stuff. And, it, um, you know, you're not really worried about the finer points of how people feel. You're worried about people staying alive. So uh, it, it is a good drug in that situation.
0: So the first boy that you you swim up to, you're there, um, obviously in the wetsuit. He's got his face mask on. You put him to sleep. Does it go to plan?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I wasn't really sure what it was what it was supposed to look like at that spot at that at that point. But yeah, so um, Jason, uh, one of the Brits, was the going to take the first boy out. Uh, Jason's particularly courageous sort of bloke. He's always up for being the first at, at anything. So he goes up the hill to see the kids make sure the kid's got his wetsuit on, little buoyancy jacket, uh, hood and so forth, and um, then brings the kid down the hill. The kid sits on my lap. I'm sort of half in the water, so he's just sitting on my knee. And I give him the two injections to make him go to sleep. And once he's asleep, we then put the mask on his face and because, you know, they're quite claustrophobic things. I didn't want to upset the kids any more than, than necessary Once the mask is on his face, then um, Jason would go off and get his own diving equipment ready because he's going to take this boy all the way through the cave uh, while I look after the next kid. And um, I then need to make sure the mask is sealing properly on the kid's face. So I do a few experiments, just pushing his face into the water and then lifting him up and checking again to see if any water's gone inside. Do that two or three times until I finally am happy. And then lie in lie him down face down in the water just uh, let him sort of bubble and breathe away there we also had decided to tie the kids hands behind their backs and tie their feet together and two reasons for that firstly to make sure they're as streamlined as possible so that when jason for example got to the one of these very tight restrictions he he would be able to push him through like a bit of a dart so that he wasn't getting tangled up or hooked up on anything (laughs) um and um also if the sedation suddenly wore off underwater we didn't want the kid to panic and reach up and rip his mask off or even more importantly rip the regulator out of jason's mouth and and drown him because you know 15 year old soccer player is pretty strong so um you know sort of two reasons for trusting the kids up a bit but i can tell you morally that felt almost as bad as pushing an unconscious child's face into the water it was um bit of a, a new low in terms of my career at that point I felt that you know this was probably euthanasia not not rescue that we were doing here um but um as you know we got those first four kids out successfully on the first day and then repeated it for the next two days
0: what was it like getting the first one out is it do you remember the feeling do you remember was it more just relief do you remember the the reception from everyone else that was there were they just like what the hell? what was what was the response like
1: Yeah, well, I wasn't aware of how any of this had gone until I got out of the cave at the end of the day because we had no communications with the outside world. We were a long way underground. And so I was just sending these kids off one by one. And apart from on the first day with the first couple of kids, I had no idea whether they'd even survived the first small dive that they had to do. So we got Rick Stanton in the next dry chamber along to uh, come back in and tell me, what the result was of that first dive. I was supposed to wait for him to come back after the first kid, but I actually forgot and uh, let him uh, and sent the second child through, which caused a bit of trouble in the in the next chamber because they weren't quite prepared for that. But anyway, finally I, I remembered and then Rick came back and said, well, the first two have survived that first little dive. So, so far, so good.
0: Because, sorry, they, they had to go from different chambers, didn't they, and get re.injected again and, yeah. and go back.
1: Yeah, so there were five separate dives, if you like, over the two and a half kilometres on the way out. And in between the dives, they're either just floating down the river uh, with their airspace above them or in a couple of spots to be picked up and carried over some rocks and things then back into the water again. A bit like uh, whitewater rafting, I suppose, uh, with some <laughs> underwater sections. So, yeah, so until I got out at the end of the day, I didn't know whether I was going to be told that all four had died, half had died or all successful. So, yeah, I was pretty happy to hear that they'd, they'd made it out but completely surprised as well.
0: I can imagine it'd be a massive relief, a surprise, but then also that dawning factor like, fuck, we've got to go back tomorrow and do that again.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, that realisation was the real low point for the three-day rescue for me because after the first day having had some success – And suddenly everything's changed, right? Like the expectations are, well, you've got it right. And so if someone dies now, then fingers are going to be pointed. Well, you must have done something wrong. And um, so that night I remember actually feeling more pressure than any other time um, during the rescue. Um, And it was uh, after the second day was successful, then I just started to feel cautiously optimistic that maybe we're going to actually get away with this.
0: There, was there any hairy moments? I, I know that the whole moment, the whole experience was was hairy and there was always points that were, were bubbling up, but was there anything in there that you we were on, on the second two days it was like, oh, geez, this one this one might not make it or this one could be a bit trickier than the others?
1: Yeah, well, a couple of the kids had chest infections, so I could hear them coughing away, and that often causes trouble anaesthetising kids. They can often sort of hold their breath or have other medical problems arise under anesthesia and actually it was the f- the, f- the last boy on the first day that came probably the closest to dying. Um, he was not really breathing properly under the anesthesia and so Rick was the one who was taking him through. So knowing that he wasn't quite right, I quickly put my gear on and followed him out of the cave. And when I got through that first dive, um, I found Rick and Craig who was waiting there to help. You know look after the kids as they came through i found them with this kid pulled up on the beach there and um looking pretty ordinary they they were worried about him he didn't seem to be breathing at all so i quickly got out of my gear and and in fact he he wasn't breathing he was really blue and i was just to give him just about to give him mouth to mouth and i just uh, opened his airway by pushing on the back of his jaw that's actually pretty painful stimulus to do that um so it's not a bad test to make sure people really are unconscious and um, that was enough to make him take a breath. So it was pretty close, uh, I reckon. You know, another couple of minutes he would have been in real real strife. Oh,
0: that's yeah, ex- extremely stressful. I can, I can also remember watching um, parts of the, of the documentary as well. I think one of the last boys um, on the last day might have been the one that you were alluding to earlier that was the 29-kilo young young man and, and the face mask was just too big for his head and yeah. you're talking through how, how stressful that was that was to try and actually get him out?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't realise that the last kid was so small. I thought all the small kids had gone. So we'd save these um, because we had five to do on the last day instead of the usual four. We didn't have enough of the masks that we'd come to trust and and like. So we'd taken two other masks in just for, you know, we thought, well, we'll just have to make it up as we go along with these other masks. And we had to get all those kids out that day because the forecast was really you know, um, threatening then. In fact, it had started raining the day before and we were worried about the the water levels in the cave. So I'm there with Jason, the last, the last kid, the last guy and down the hill comes this kid. And I'm just, I'm looking at him and I'm just like horrified how small he is. He's the smallest of all the boys. He's, he's the 29 kilo kid. And I'm looking at Jason going, these masks are not going to fit this boy. And, um, But he's got to come out and he's in the water and so the clock's ticking because he'll start to get cold. And so I anaesthetise him and we try the first mask and it's just like one and a half times the width of his face. You can put your hands in the sides and it was just going to fill up with water straight away, so it was just out of the question. So then we had this little pink mask that looked like a toy compared to the commercial diving gear that we had been using. And it was all sort of soft and flopping around and it just didn't look safe at all. Um, And, you know, Jason's really worried that he's going to be the guy who kills the one and only kid for the trip. And in the end, we sort of padded out his hood. We put some foam under his hood to make his face bigger and we got it sealed on there, but it looked terrible. And I said, Jason, I'm sorry, mate, you're just going to have to go because otherwise we're going to have to re-anesthetise the kid. He's getting colder by the minute and he has to go today. So off you go. So off he went, and Jason, you know, um, took such good care of that kid. He protected his face, made sure the mask didn't get uh, bumped or knocked or anything, and it must have been a hell of a stressful for dive for him. But, yeah, they got him out safely.
0: I can't imagine how stressful that would have been, um, getting the last one out when that seems like the hardest one to, to get done. Do you remember the elation of finally finding out that, it had all been successful. Do you remember coming out of the cave with all four de- uh, all, all of the boys rescued and just thinking, what the fuck did we just do?
1: Yeah, well, when I got to chamber three, which is the final chamber that you reach when the diving's finished um, and the Americans are there to sort of help me out of the water, I ended up taking one of the kids that last little dive because uh, one of the other divers actually had a bit of a near miss himself. So I took Jeez. the kid from him on my way out and uh, took the kid through that section. And handed off this kid, and the Americans are going, That's it, mate. They're all alive. Fantastic. Because Jason and his boy had already been through. And I just honestly, I was so exhausted after four days of, you know, two or three hours sleep a night, 12 hours underground each day, late night meetings. And I was just so knackered. I honestly, I didn't, it took a while to sink in. But then we all stood around in Chamber 3, all the divers and lots of the ties. Uh, we are still waiting for the Navy SEALs who are still in the cave to come out. And we are all just standing around with these stupid grins on our face, looking at each other. No one could really talk very much. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, you could just, uh, if a look counted for anything, we could just tell that it was just an amazing moment and uh, one to be savoured. But uh, we are all too knackered to party that night, I'm afraid. What
0: happened once you got out on, onto the onto the land, and and unfortunately you couldn't party that night. But what was the reception of of the Thai community when you're over there, and 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 um, and their reaction to the news?
1: Oh, extraordinary! I mean, you could sense the whole country, you know, applauding, and and maybe the whole world, you know, it was it mm. was amazing. And I have a very clear memory of walking out of the cave on that last night, and everyone who was outside the cave had lined up in a bit of a corridor you know, a row of two people and, um, I don't know, a thousand people just on this big, big thing you were walking through and every single one of them wanted to shake your hand, pat you on the back, and then when you got to the end of it, you would stand on the end of it and, and join the queue sort of thing. And, you know, just this cheering and clapping that went on for about an hour, I reckon, uh, while people came out of the cave. Uh, it, it was exceptional. It was a great moment.
0: Um, is is it true as well that, that there was some concern for yourself and, and Rick and, and and the rest of the crew that if it didn't go to plan, there would be some backlash from the Thai government? I, I remember saying that there, there was actually a plan that if things didn't go the way expected and something did go wrong, there was an, an exit strategy to just get you, you guys straight out of the country.
1: Yeah, so on the first morning, on the first rescue morning, one of the guys from the Department of Foreign Affairs came up to me and said, oh, look, um we've just become aware that if if there's a problem any of these kids die there's a chance you could end up in the Thai judicial system (laughs) right great so uh, but honestly you know we're so our brains are so full of this plan and trying to think about what we're what we're doing that day I honestly didn't have time to even think about it so I just said to the Australian guy look If something goes wrong, you guys would just have to get us out of Thailand. We just have to trust the Australian government to look after us. And maybe at some level I couldn't really fathom that as volunteers they're trying to help and putting our own lives at risk potentially for these kids that the Thais would really do that. But, you know, I think when things go wrong, um, it's not unusual for people to look for a scapegoat and so maybe it wasn't out of the question. But honestly, it was the last thing on my mind. I didn't have time to worry about that stuff.
0: So you're in Thailand, you're party, you're happy, everyone's, it's been a really successful um, rescue, obviously, it's, it's made worldwide news and the whole world's absolutely wrapped. What was it like for you? Did you head straight home? Did you go anywhere else? Did you, anything strange happen that you were just like, what the hell is going on?
1: Uh, well, yeah, it got weirder and weirder for the next few days, I can tell you, because um, some of the parties they put on for us were fairly phenomenal <laughs> and... Um Probably uh, outside the context of a, a polite podcast like this to tell tell what uh, what stuff oh, was happening, but to, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I mean, sadly for me, that night of the end of the last rescue day, I, I rang my wife as I was doing each evening, and she had the terrible news that my father had died that afternoon. So, oh, um, so that obviously took the edge off everything for me, and um, oh, I felt you know this these bizarre emotions of horrible. Terrible sadness and elation on the the other hand, and honestly, I was just a complete mess. I was so exhausted, and um, so I really didn't know what to do with myself. Everyone assumed when I told them the next morning what had happened that I would just go home, but I actually, um, I decided to stay and celebrate not just you know the the kids and the rescue, but also you know, the life of my dad who was, you know, really like best friend sort of father, we, we, mm. we just got on so well and he's uh, the guy who pretty much showed me the world as it is in terms of the ocean and all, all my passions, you know, all, all came from him. And he um, was one of those really lovely, generous guys who just loves people and incredibly sociable. Everyone's his mate. And he he had been diagnosed with cancer fairly recently. And the end for him was looking pretty gruesome. And he was kind of lucky in that he just collapsed and died, you know, probably unrelated to the cancer. Um, And so I sort of got my head around that and thought, you know what, this is actually an absolute blessing. The guy's 88 years old. Uh, His death was looking like it might be horrible. And now he's just died. And um, that's something to be celebrated. So I managed to turn that around in my head and just Stay on in Thailand and just um, celebrate both him and what we'd been involved with. And um, I think it was the best thing I could have done, just that that sort of time with all these people I've been working with, half of whom I didn't even know their names, you know, just to uh, have a few beers with all of them and and celebrate all this stuff was, was great.
0: Yeah, well, you have in, incredible um, mental resilience and I'm sure, uh, well, I know how proud of you, your father would have been of everything you were able to achieve. Was, was he able to know what had happened? Did he, was he up to date with everything that had transpired when you were there?
1: Yeah, my two older sisters and my wife had been popping in, popping in daily to see him and, you know, show him the newspaper clippings and stuff, you know, saying <laughs> Richard's involved with all this, all this madness and, uh, you know, he we had this running joke that he would, every time I'd see him, he'd say, now that cave dive, that's a bit dangerous, isn't it? You should give it up. And I'd go, you know what, dad, I will. I'm going to give it up. I've just done my last dive. And he'd go, good on you. And then he'd go, hang on, you're pulling my leg, aren't you? And so, um, you know, he he kind of looked at the whole thing as a bit mad, but kind of understood that it was something I loved. So I'm sure he was proud.
0: Oh, mate, I can't imagine how proud he would have been. And, um, I'm sure he was uh, looking down in, into light now still with everything you've been able to achieve. What um, what what was uh, the news of coming back to Australia? Did you – what were your expectations, I suppose? Obviously, your family knew what was going on. You know, the public knew what was going on. Did you expect to come home and be greeted by everyone or did you expect to just go home and, and get back into everything you were doing?
1: Yeah, I thought – honestly, we had no understanding of the size of this story globally. Yeah. Um, and so it was – A hell of a shock, I have to say, when we came home, we realised that, you know, the whole country, in fact, the whole world had been watching this rescue and that as the two or as two of the Australians involved, that we had become a bit of a focus of this rescue within Australia. I mean, there were a lot of other Australians there, Federal Police and uh, one of the Navy divers, an Army major. Um, So, you know, we, we certainly weren't the only Aussies there, but we had somehow become the face of this thing. And, um, I kind of knew there's something going on when the next morning, the Saturday morning, I was home, and I walked down the driveway to pick up the paper in my jocks, and out the front of the house, looking through the gate, is all the news crews from all the different TV stations. So I go shit, and go running back inside. I go, bloody hell, Fiona, there's cameras outside the house. What do we do? She said, I don't know. So I rang my sister-in-law who works in media and PR and said, I've got a problem. Can you come around? So she came round and um, she sort of spoke to them all, you know, what do you need? How, what do we have to do to make you go away? And so um, I went out out the front and just like mumbled a few words to them. I was so frightened. Uh, you know, I never trusted the media. I'd never had anything to do with them really. <laughs> So I just said a few words, and they were happy, they went. They all went away, and I went, all right, hopefully that'll be the end of that, and I'll just go back to work on Monday, and you know, maybe I'll get a nice letter from the government saying, good job, boys, or something, but as you know, it all went kind of crazy after that.
0: Yeah, as far as publicity goes, that's a very positive way to be uh, portrayed in the media, so... You uh, you definitely deserved it. Um, with the with what you said then, obviously going back to work on Monday. Um, I think from memory you didn't go back to work on Monday. You took a couple of days off to get back into it. But what uh, happened with the Australian of the Year and and from there, how did it all work? And was was there any sort of plans, or was it just sort of unexpected to get nominated? I'm quite unfamiliar because we. We, I must admit, you're not our first Australian of the year we have on the show. As much as that is a, a great uh, honour, we've had Dylan Alcott, who's recently Australian of the year too. So you're in very good company. Um, well, as the, actually should I say, he's in very good company.
1: No, I think I'm in very company. That that man is a you know a, a genuine legend and, and a very fitting um uh, recipient of that award. Uh, you know, I, we all the Australians of the year suffer this imposter syndrome where you go, you know. <laughs> Surely they could have done better. Craig, my mate, often likes to uh, joke when, uh, you know, it's speaking at an international conference or something. He says, you know, it's pretty sad if we're the best Australia has to offer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, you know, the difference, just to touch on that a bit more, the difference between guys like Craig and me and someone like Grace and, and Dylan now is that, you know, those guys have, for sometimes positive reasons, sometimes not got this massive agenda, which is a hugely worthwhile platform they need to speak out about, and they've dedicated their lives to, to doing it. And um, and for me, they are genuinely worthy recipients of that award. Now, a couple of blokes who have got a, a slightly unusual hobby who just end up in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and, and do one kind of act or involved in one event, I can honestly say we, we're still quite embarrassed about that award and didn't really feel like that was you know, what we've done was, was worthy of that. But, you know, we have to get over that, I know, and, and I guess, um, you know, we just did the best we could with the award and, and tried to live up to the expectations of it and hopefully by the end of the year at least we'd, you know, deserve um, maybe having the award. But um, but it is it is a scary thing to be handed that, that award and, um, you know, it um, certainly puts the spotlight on you, which is not something we were looking for in fact we actively hid from the media for about the first three months we went out to the nullarbor and went caving for as long as possible so that no one could find us there was no phone reception and um, then when we came back we went to canada on an expedition so continued to hide and if anything that seemed to make things worse i don't know if you've watched the life of brian with monty python when they um when they say only the true messiah would deny his divinity And uh, and so it felt like that, you know. The more we hid, the worse it got. The more of an enigma we became, and the more (laughs) interested they were. So in the end, we just had to, you know, say something. And then Craig got the Western Australian and Australian of the Year, and I got the South Australian one, and that turned up the heat a bit more. And um, then when we won the thing in Canberra, it was just that that was it. And and it seemed a bit churlish actually to continue to hide and not engage once you're the australian of the year so we thought well, well we'll just suck it up for a year and do the best we can
0: yeah well cave divers hiding in caves to avoid the media is actually quite an intriguing story in itself um <laughs> how, how did it change for you life itself after getting home um having the rescue being awarded australian of the, of the year what's was the biggest change and i suppose the change to this day because you've obviously you haven't slowed down you're still doing so many incredible things
1: no, well, you know, once we became Australians of the year, I decided to really throw myself into it. I thought, well, if they're going to give us an award like this, we've got we've to make sure we've earned it. So, um, I mean, the other thing is for us, you know, people say, well, what's your message? And for Dylan or Grace or the previous recipients, it, it's kind of obvious. That's, that's why they're there, that their message is part of who they are. But mm. we had to actually think about, well, what do I stand for and what's important to me? I can't preach cave dive... Cave diving or cave rescue as my message for the country. <laughs> um, so I just thought about what what stuff is important to me, and it, and it became quickly clear to me that um, I can actually use my journey to that point in the cave rescue as as my message, you know that that um, you know adventuring and doing things that are difficult and uncomfortable, sometimes putting yourself out there doing things that you know can be scary. It's actually a really important thing to do, particularly for young people and maybe also for parents who are a bit overprotective sometimes these days of their children. You know, they don't want them to ride their bikes to school because, you know, there's too much traffic and they're worried about stranger danger and this and that. And, of course, with the, um, the changes with being online and social media and stuff, there are some real issues there. But it's so important for kids to still experience the outdoor world and to go camping and fishing with their parents or beach holidays or, you know, whatever it is, even if it's not outdoor adventuring, just to put themselves out there and do things that are hard and difficult and not just get a ribbon for turning up. Um, You know, I am sounding like an old man, I I know, but I really don't believe that kids in any kind of um, competitive endeavour should be over-rewarded just for having a go, you know, You have to accept that in life there are winners and there are losers, and being a loser is going to happen far more often for 99% of us, and you have to work out how to deal with that and, uh, you know, toughen up a little bit because life is not easy, and um, all these lessons are important lessons to learn along the way. So that was my message, I guess, and... um, uh, so, you know, I was working very, very long hours, so I actually had to give up part of my work to be able to do that, and, um, it's really opened up a lot of opportunities for me. You know, we wrote the book, um, I've continued, um, to be working on another couple of books now. I've got this interest in making documentary films, which I'm working really hard on without getting one over the line quite yet, but getting closer and closer every day. Uh, I've got my podcast that we mentioned. And just continuing to talk to people like yourself and hopefully get that message out there still that, um, you know, we're here for a good time, not a long time, and you've got to make it every second count and uh, do some good for others while you're there.
0: Um, mate, your podcast, I don't want to... Uh breeze over this either because you have had some incredible guests and it seems weird someone of your stature that's already done so many crazy things is is hosting a podcast and interviewing other people um tell us a little bit about it who you've had on and, and maybe some of your favorite episodes that you've you've really learned from
1: yeah well the podcast was one of these COVID isolation projects and I thought all right how, how can I keep myself busy uh, let's start a podcast um and I thought with some of the connections I've, I've made through caving and adventuring and then through the Australian of the Year, I might be able to tap into some interesting guests. And, you know, I'm interested in risk and risk taking for the reasons we've, we've talked about. And for many uh, years, I've had people say to me stuff like, oh, you must be crazy to do da-da-da, including cave diving primarily. And yet I've never felt like a real risk taker. I've always felt like I'm quite careful and, and sensible and I'm more of a risk manager than a risk taker. And my premise was: I wonder if other risk takers feel the same way as I do, or whether they are actually crazy, like people think I am. And so the, you know, the uh, the example of say a base jumper, you know, surely the, they are adrenaline junkies because they leap off a cliff, they have about three seconds of free fall, they pull their parachute, and they land on the ground. I mean, if that's not about adrenaline, surely what is? So I started this podcast called Real Risk, and I talked to real risk takers like. Uh, people who either have sports that are dangerous or occupations that are dangerous or just got caught up in situations outside their control. And so take take the take the base jumper, for example, a guy called Sean Tumor. He's um, an American guy. He's done more base jumps than any other person still living, you know, like over seven or 8,000 by now. And he is the most zen, calm, careful guy you could ever imagine. You know, I just thought he'd be this shrieking, hooping, hollering kind of extrovert and he's just like man I'm really calm I just like I'm very careful with my risk assessments and that's why he's still alive when so many of his friends are not and um, so that was an eye-opener but then I've gone on to talk to some really big names like James Cameron the the movie producer who's actually an amazing deep sea explorer in his own right so if you've seen the Titanic or any of the movies that show some of the real footage of the Titanic, you know, he's done all that stuff in, in submersibles. And then he went on to do the um, uh, Deep Sea Challenger to go to the Deep Sea Challenger to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, Alex Honnold from Free Solo, Jimmy Chin, uh, the director of Free Solo, and Jimmy and Chai, the directors of The Rescue, which we've been talking about. Uh, Motorsports people, I'm, I'm a bit of a petrol head myself, and, uh, yeah, you name it, psychologists who, who understand risk, all sorts. So, um, yeah, I'm really pleased with it. I just, uh, it's just a lot of work, as you know, Dil.
0: It definitely is. Is, it, is there a common theme? Like you know, I'm lucky enough to speak to people like yourself um, and, and many you know, people that have achieved incredible things, and there's always a common theme that, that I sort of can uncover, and it's, I always say it's, like it's grit. It's just the, determined to just the determination to just keep going when other people would stop is something that is really common with my guests is there a common theme that you found in in risk takers that you, you might be surprising to other people to hear?
1: Well, what I was surprised about and, but pleased about was that my hypothesis was actually correct. Uh, virtually all these people are like me. They're very careful, methodical, risk averse risk managers. So, when they get out of the bed in the morning, take someone like Alex Honnold, if you've watched that film Free Solo, and you know, mm. he climbs El Capitan 3,000-something feet straight up this sheer rock face with no ropes. You know, that just looks like suicide to you and I. But once you listen to him talk about how he can do that, you realise that he does it because he doesn't think there's much of a risk because he's so good at what he does. Yeah. And he knows every handhold every foothold as he goes up that that mountain. And he said it's actually quite rare that he gets scared because he's well inside his comfort zone with what he's doing. So we just don't understand being that extraordinary at, at at rock climbing that, you know, that can be a comfortable thing to do. And maybe that's why, you know, as a cave diver, I'm really comfortable underwater in a cave and that's why it looks brave but it's actually not courageous because it's not scary for me. Um being on the footy field like yourself would be terrifying for me, but it's what you're good at, so it, you know it's fun. Um, yeah, it's that, still that's
0: terrifying f- for me. <laughs> um, but <laughs> with with that, I just on that documentary though, with Alex with Free Solo, I actually have seen that, and I can completely understand what you're talking about. In his notes, he had written every single, you know up, down, across that he had to do and mapped out the whole journey so many times in his head. And I remember being that one – there was that one bit that he was scared of doing where he had to put his, like, his heel up, his hand on, and that was that one part of the trip that he just had to visualise the whole time through. So completely understand, like, he, as much as it is a risk, he knew exactly where he was going, he knew exactly what he had to do, and it was just about getting in the flow state and, and getting it done.
1: And what's terrifying to us is that, you know, that oh, out, of, out, 10 times, it. out of the ten times he tried that move, he fell off nine. And it was only the last one that he made it. he said, okay, we'll do it without the rope now. He thought, Jesus, there's no way. Yeah,
0: No, he's, he's a different cat. Oh, um, yeah. Mate, you've achieved so much. We've got so, um, I could, you know, talk to you for absolutely hours. But um, I'm very wary of your time. I'm so Priest, of it. What is next for you? I know you mentioned your documentary that is, is getting off the ground. Are you allowed to talk to us a bit about that?
1: Uh, well, I'm trying very hard to continue to showcase the caves that I love exploring and mm-hmm. um, so kind of a, a diving exploration, sciencey y um, documentary series about, about caves and cave diving is where it's going. And um, so, yeah, I've got a few irons in the fire and, and working very hard to get one to market but it's a very tough industry to crack and much harder than I ever thought could be possible even with some of the doors that have opened to me since the Australian of the Year. But um, as you might have gathered, I'm not. Someone who's going to uh, stop easily, I'll keep pursuing it until, until it either gets up or collapses.
0: Oh, yeah, I have absolutely no doubt we'll be seeing that documentary very soon. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Again, we cannot thank you enough for your time, your in, incredible story. Um, you've done so much. And, yeah, just to, to, to hear your story and to have you on the show, I, I can't thank you enough for, your, for all your time and, and your your... Really just, I know these words might not stick comfortably with you, but it's, it's inspiring. You're, you are an Australian hero and yeah, we're just blessed to, to hear your story. So thank you so much. Good luck for the rest of what's next. And if we can ever um, catch up again or if we help out in any way, please uh, don't be a stranger.
1: Thanks, Dill. Great to chat.
0: If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon, Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends, or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.